This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Every time we approach Jobs Day, I can speak for Carol and myself when we say and think we want to know what Chris Liu thinks about all of this, no matter which way it goes. He is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, of course, a former deputy Deputy Secretary of Labor. I get that. I sort of trip on that almost every time. I'm sorry, Chris. Former former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. He's on the phone uh, with us now. Chris, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, it's good to have you back. Um, So your initial reaction, like your gut reaction to this, and and maybe more important, as you saw it all sort of filter through, what do we need to take away from this jobs report, both monthly and, uh, and then the weekly jobless claims? So there was a lot of data today. Uh, gut reaction was good with a lot of caveats. Uh, you know, we always tell people the monthly jobs data is really kind of looking way back. And in this case, it goes back really um, to the pay period that began on June 8th. So uh, in that second week of June, uh, the economy clearly was recovering. Uh, but when you add that with the weekly jobs claims, you sort of get kind of a mixed uh, picture because we're continuing to have again. If you add in not only the people applying under the normal unemployment program, but the new pandemic program for gig workers, it's about two million people applying for unemployment every single week. New people applying, um, and you know, total right now about 31 million people on unemployment, which is not really going down. So, if you put all of this together, you get a sense of an economy that was reopening uh, by the beginning of June. Jobs were coming back, and that recovery may have slowed. And we don't really know uh, how much it has slowed. And again, as we always say, we're still in the middle of a public health crisis. And until you resolve that, you really can't get a good sense about where the economy is going. Right. We're still, what, above 19 million in terms of those who are on unemployment benefits that are out of work. Yeah. I mean, if we simply look at the number of people who applied under the traditional unemployment program, it was 1.4 million this week, which is more than double the worst week we ever had during the Great Recession. So the numbers are still elevated. They've come down a lot. But we also need to understand that just in the months of March and April, we lost about 22 million jobs. Uh, We've picked up about seven, seven to eight million we've picked back up again. Um, but these numbers, and we always say jobs created, uh, and we probably this month just simply need to say jobs restored to people because, you know, one of the quirky things about the data is you see, you know, just in healthcare employment, uh, 190,000 uh, dental jobs were created. Uh, I suspect we didn't have 190,000 new dentists last month. I think right. it's because <laughs> all dental right. offices were closed. They reopened. So, again, it, 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 this is positive with a lot of caveats. Right. I just look at my own world. I mean, I went and had a root canal. Like, like yeah. these are things that I had were not do. you know, was not, I'm going to go back to my dentist. So, like, yeah, I get that. It wasn't a brand new dentist? It was not a brand new <laughs> dentist. Yes. No, no, no. Hey, Chris, I feel like 
a more constructive conversation at this point. I mean, these numbers are going to be what these numbers are. I mean, we right. have shut down our economy. We're finding our way back, whether it was a Republican in the White House or a Democrat. Like, this yep. is what you're dealing with. It's really tough. I do wonder, though, when we get on the other side of this, are there companies, industries are saying, you know what, we really don't need those kind of workers anymore. Or, you know, when I know there's that demand side of what the economy's like and what's going to be needed. But I do wonder if this is going to be a real readjustment in kind of the types of jobs that ultimately stay with us and those that ultimately go away. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I'm in, uh, I'm in uh, the D.C. area right now, which is you know, partially reopened. Uh, I even think in a reopened economy, people just aren't going to go to restaurants uh, if they can do takeout. Uh, you know, we know that people aren't traveling, people aren't going overseas because, you know, U.S. citizens can't leave the country functionally, at least going to Europe. Uh, so we know that travel will be down. Uh, we know that a lot of companies have basically said, hey, you work remotely for the rest of the year, which has then a cascading impact through real estate and through mom-and-pop delis and right. all of the other services that support companies along the way. Now, there may be other other industries that pick up along the way, but I suspect those are not the ones that are going to be as job intensive. And so, you know, a lot of the um, broader structural changes we've seen in the economy will probably be accelerated as a result of this. Like what specifically, though? Well, I think of this, you know, I, as a person who probably eats more fast food than I should, uh, there is, you know, you can order online on your mobile app. You can also use a touch screen. And I suspect in this environment, they're just going to start to move to that. And that's not to say you don't need people, you know, handling the food, but it's going to be a lot fewer of those people. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of the companies are going to realize, you know, we just don't need in general this many people around the company as much as possible. So, you know, we will see. Um, you know, we might end up having a full recovery or, you know, we might just kind of be operating at this kind of 75% level for the foreseeable future which in many ways I think is the worst outcome because you'd have a half-open uh, economy uh, with still all of the increased infections and deaths. You know, we did tease that this week was interesting. I feel like over the last week or so that we are now once again um, seeing updates on the virus from the White House. Um, Vice President Pence is often uh, conducting them. And what's interesting is the tone has changed. They seem much more organized and, you know, we were kidding that now they're saying, okay, wear a mask, <laughs> yeah. you know, but the tone has changed. And is it just a case, tell us about crisis. I mean, you don't have the playbook initially when the crisis hits and you do learn as things go along. What do you make of the progression in terms of how the administration has handled the pandemic? Well, I, I really think it's been the, the tale of two administrations. I mean, you've got even this week, while you had the vice president um, encouraging mask wearing, you had Secretary Azar uh, test uh, on TV last weekend, uh, expressing concerns. Obviously, Dr. Fauci this week testifying too, and then you have the president, who, while yesterday he said, you know, he is encouraging people to wear masks. He again said that he thought this would disappear, and and I think that's kind of the challenge. I mean, you know, um, below the president, uh, you've got the, the the wheels of government that are moving, um, that are ensuring that you know, uh, states get ventilators and PPEs and trying to issue guidelines. But ultimately, the president has the biggest bully pulpit. Um, and I think the, 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 the kind of lack of consistent messages coming from him, I think, have undermined uh, a lot of what, you know, other people in his administration are trying to do. I mean, you continue to see a fairly significant number of people in this country who, you know, are not wearing masks right now. 
Uh, you've got a lot of states uh, which, you know, while encouraging masks, the governors encouraging masks, are not mandating them as well. And we know that's, you know, one of the simplest things you can do. And so, um, yes, yeah, so there certainly has been an increased, a ramped up level of concern and engagement this week. But I think it would be a lot more effective if the president got on board as well. Right. And so, Chris, we love talking to you about all branches of government because you've worked in in all of them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you make of Congress's response at this point, either from a stimulus perspective or or stimulus slash rescue perspective or from the perspective of sort of setting the political and and the tone around this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, You know, again, just on this mask wearing issue, I mean, uh, Speaker Pelosi has been, you know, very – uh, open about her wearing a mask and is basically now requiring that if you show up at a committee room as a House member, you have to wear a mask or you'll get kicked out. So she's trying to set that um, example of leadership. I do think on the economic stimulus, I mean, I think this is going to be problematic. And I think, you know, what I hope does not come out of today's jobs numbers is that people read it and say, you know what, mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. We don't need to do anything else. I mean, we know that these extended unemployment benefits are uh, expiring at the end of July. Uh, fortunately, the Senate this week extended um, the PPE program or the, the PPP program uh, for small businesses. That's a good thing. But again, we continue to talk about this next wave of layoffs that might come from state and local governments that are just strapped right now. And unless Washington provides some help, we're going to start to see layoffs. I mean, even this week we saw Mayor de Blasio saying, you know, he might be furloughing 22,000 workers in New York. In Maryland, yesterday, Governor Hogan uh, is announced he's cutting $400 million from the state budget. It'll impact services and employees as well. So um, we are not out of the woods. And I, and, so, and, and I think that's sort of the problematic aspect of today's positive jobs numbers. I think people will read it in the wrong way. Well, I think your point is so smart, Chris, in that this whole idea of that you've got to go the distance, right? And you can see certainly with the president, and I'm not being critical, it's just obvious that he has moved on to running his campaign. And at the yeah. same time, like I think about the financial crisis, it wasn't like one program and we were fixed. We still, <laughs> you know, to some to some extent, you know, are, are thinking about that and still dealing with it. Like you have to continue to be on it. Yeah. I mean, look, the lesson we learned from the Great Recession is that we did not put enough stimulus into um, into the country, and we, we kind of backed off way too quickly. And, you know, this past week you had the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, saying to Congress, don't get complacent, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, in, in, your, in your economic response. And I feel like we're getting a little complacent right now. And the irony about the president's, you know, kind of quote-unquote transition to greatness is that actually more stimulus would help the economy and probably would help his reelection prospects. You know, unfortunately, you know, there's this dynamic, obviously, with Senate Republicans concerned about debt. Obviously, House Democrats have a pretty expensive bill out there. So I'm hoping when they get back from July 4th, um, cooler heads prevail and they find some kind of compromise because we need that stimulus in the economy. Absolutely. All right. Always great to catch up with you. Never enough time. I feel like we always have 58 more questions for you, but uh, we appreciate you coming with us on this day, as you do most job days, Chris Lewis, Senior Fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, joining us on the phone. 
from the D.C. area. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I defy anyone to listen to this sentence and not want to read this story. Sean Murphy was an epic weed smoker, a devoted Tom Brady fan, and the best cat burglar that Lynn, Massachusetts had ever seen. I mean, it's irresistible. It is... You're in. It is coming to a theater near you. Let's just put that out there. Absolutely. And to boot, the story is written by one of our all-time favorite writers at Bloomberg Business Week, Zeke Fox, finance reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone. And Zeke, this story is incredible. How did you find out about this? Well, I was. I had read a little bit about the about the case. It was. uh, I made the papers when the rings were stolen and when they were recovered. And uh, these are the we Bowl should rings. point out. I'm sorry, these are the, Super yeah, Bowl sorry. rings. These are um, New England Patriots, or excuse me, New York Giants Super Bowl rings stolen by a Patriots fan. Yikes! Yeah. Go so on. after the infamous helmet catch Super Bowl, Super Bowl forty two in two thousand and eight, when the Patriots, who were on their way to an undefeated season, and were upset by Eli Manning and the Giants. Uh, this cat burglar slash furniture mover from Lynn, Massachusetts, stole the Giants' Super Bowl rings. And, spoiler alert, I wrote to him in prison and said, you know, I had heard a little about your about this story. By any chance, are you a Patriots fan like me? Would you like to talk about it? And over the course of the last, year or so he's he's been telling me a story and the true story of what happened is you know crazier than i even imagined well this is a guy i mean the stealing of the rings is one thing but he is quite a character right and has been you know stealing things for a long time so he's from lynn which is a suburb on boston's north shore and when he was growing up, it was a pretty down-and-out place. And burglary was like a career path that a lot of, or at least a good number of young people actually pursued and got taught by you know, older generations of burglars. And burglars in Lynn specialized in prying open the doors to pharmacies and stealing the pills to resell. It was a pretty easy thing that could be done, you know, in the cover of night and you know, you could often get away with it. And Murphy was introduced to this world in middle school, I believe, at Christmas time, sleepover at his aunt's house. His cousin taught him how to do it. But before long, he had moved on to much bigger scores. And so what's he, I mean, in your correspondence, like, how would you describe you do a nice job describing him in the story but like how would you describe him to to folks so he really is like a typical boston character he loved the patriots he worked monday through friday at his real moving company which really did move people's furniture he drove muscle cars he liked to work on his camaro which had a custom red velour interior um he liked motley crew and other hair metal a lot of the times he had a mullet and a uh biker mustache um he liked uh he didn't really do drugs which was the downfall of 
a lot of his contemporaries among Glenn's burglars, but he really liked uh, smoking weed and coming up with complex heists. I mean, it's remarkable. You know, first of all, it's a, it's so well written. It's such a great read, and I'm not kidding that I could see. You know, certainly here we are working from home, and we've all binged on Tiger King. Like this is, I could see in a multi part series um, on one of the streaming services because it's almost too good to be true, but it is true. Um, and it's just this fascinating character, right? Who it was just a way of life for him, right? In terms of where he was born and 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 you know what he did. And as you said, he kind of built up to his crimes. I mean, ultimately, though, and I'm going to say there's some interesting personal life stuff <laughs> that went on uh, too, in terms of girlfriends and and uh, how he went about that. But I mean, ultimately, he was caught, right? Yes. So Murphy, if you talk to him, he'll say he's never really been caught because he doesn't consider it being caught unless he's caught in the act. The problem is that quite a few times he has been caught. He's spent almost, or yeah. I think even more than half his life in, in prison because the way that the police work is not so much to catch people in the act but to find out about things that happen, talk to people who might know about it, and prosecute the guilty party once they've identified them. It's kind of like a myth that they would catch uh, a burglar in the act so much. Um, so he's frequently, throughout his career, I guess I'll call it, has been uh, sold out by people who you know, had worked with him or yeah. who knew him and, and the Super Bowl uh, theft was really no was they worked out like that too yeah I mean it's really I mean there's also for for Patriots fans and everything's turned out just fine for Patriots fans let's not uh, let, let's not shed any tears for uh, for the Pats fans but you, it does take you back to a really uh, a really sort of pivotal time and I mean that rivalry and I, I mean I remember watching that game and, and you mentioned you know the the helmet catch and and that was peak Eli Manning uh, in in many ways and so it's just it's a tale uh, that really resonates in, in time for a lot of sports fans uh, more than as much as anything Zeke. Well yeah I hope that it's uh, bring, it's something fun for sports fans who haven't had anything to watch for the right. last few months. <laughs> Exactly. All right. So, how do you feel? Just before we let you go, how do you feel about uh, Brady in Tampa? Ooh, well, I'm I'm a Pat fan myself, so I know I hate to see it. I hate to see it, but I'll still be rooting for him to do well. And Cam Newton, how are you feeling about that? I think you know he makes the the past Super Bowl contenders. I'm I'm psyched to see what Belichick comes up with for him to do. Yeah, never bet against Belichick. I think that's the uh, one one of the takeaways that we all have. This story, it's a must read. The perfect long weekend read. Carol uh, can't recommend it enough. And love, love, love anything Zeke Fox uh, puts his mind to. Ben Affleck maybe does the movie. Yeah, yeah, checks out. It's just it. It's such a great read, and it, it is just kind of fascinating. The guy, like you know, while he was in in jail, like taught himself 
law, right? No, no, <laughs> like, so great. he can represent himself and understand the law. Um, so it's just a, a great thing. I'll put it out on Twitter, and you guys uh, pick up the magazine or check it out at Bloomberg.com. So really fascinating. Um, Zeke Fox, what a, I, I love talking to him. I, I could just guy. imagine the communication. I mean, that's a kind uh, of a side story. I mean, maybe that's how you do the movie, if, like yes. from the reporter's perspective of reaching out and getting access to it. Who plays Zeke it. Fox? We'll have to work on that. I'll have to ask Zeke. I don't know. Yeah. Who would Zeke Fox want to play him? I don't know. We'll have to put that on on Twitter. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little Business Week economics now. Obviously, we've been talking about it all day, the jobs report and the various data that have come out. Obviously, one of the strongest and most important voices that we turn to in the administration is Larry Kudlow, the chief economic advisor to the president. He caught up with our own John Farrow this morning on Bloomberg Surveillance to talk about the jobs report. Here he talks about the trend of temporary workers getting back to work. Well, look, first of all, it's a spectacular number and it helps the overall situation enormously. So you know, that's really the key point. We've created a lot of jobs in the last couple of months, and the trends continue. I, I want to say one thing. I was listening to that earlier conversation. I don't think people understand that relationship. The, the rescue package that the president led with bipartisan support in Congress and the PPP that Secretary Mnuchin uh, fostered and implemented, it's the temporary layoffs, John. It's the furloughs that are coming down. We kept people connected to their employers, okay? They did receive assistance, but we kept them connected so that as the economy reopened and the businesses reopened, roughly 80% of small businesses reopened. So we saw it again today. I mean, 63.5% of unemployed uh, now are temporary workers. That number was 75 to 80%, and it was 7.7 million. I don't see why that yeah. trend can continue. That's the point I'm making. I, I don't, I'm not sure there's like an intellectual disconnect. Why that trend can continue. A lot of temporary layoffs will go back to work. And that, certainly- of course, is Larry Kudlow, the chief economic advisor to the president, Carol. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess time will tell, Jason, right, if that trend continues. I mean, he's making that point, and we'll see uh, in job reports to come. Certainly that weekly number was a bit troublesome. So let's get more analysis of today's data set. Business Week Economics, uh, continuing with Bloomberg Economics Senior U.S. Economist Yelena Shalekyeva joining us on the phone in uh, Long Island. So, Yelena, how did you and the Bloomberg Economics team read the data points that we got on the jobs market, right? We got monthly jobs numbers backward looking and before we started kind of closing down parts of the economy again. And then, of course, we got the weekly numbers. Absolutely. And uh, both are very significant. So payrolls was uh, an upward surprise and it was a positive report all across once again highlighting that uh, economic fundamentals are strong enough for the recovery to take place once uh, the health uh, crisis is over. And uh, that's a big caveat, though, So because, you know, we, we all uh, listen to the news, we all watch the news, and we see the uh, big acceleration in uh, the number of COVID-19 cases, particularly in the Sunbelt states. And uh, I would say that uh, the months of July will actually help us uh, define uh, the trajectory of the economic growth going forward for the remainder of the year. So will we see another um, round of uh, business closures? 
or we will just continue to uh, chug along and, and uh, you know, this uh, uh, recent spike in the number of cases will subside. Uh, so I think it's, it's a lot of questions. The data are telling us, yes, things were looking good uh, in June, but we're in July already, and uh, a lot of uh, things have changed since June. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things have changed that I think we're already seeing in some of the other data, right, Elaine? I mean, what are you looking at that gives maybe a more realistic picture of, of current uh, issues, current economic activity beyond the job and, and jobless claims? So uh, you just uh, mentioned one of them, right? Uh, and uh, it, this is the the number of jobless benefits. Yeah. And jobless benefits have been stubbornly, stubbornly elevated. So, and uh, that might not be surprising, given uh, that the, the reacceleration in COVID nineteen cases started uh, right after the payroll survey week for um, the months of June. So the second half of June actually already saw uh, a pickup in cases. And that might be uh, telling us that some businesses were uh, ready to reopen, but they didn't. So that resulted in uh, a significant uh, high number in uh, jobless claims. Or maybe uh, there were some new um, uh, claimants and uh, this number may, in fact, uh, rebound. So Jason and I caught up with, as we usually do on monthly jobs uh, days, with Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. And, you know, his point is, you know, that we learned some things from the financial crisis, that they didn't put enough stimulus out in in the beginning, right? So the lesson right now is he said you can't be complacent, that we're going to probably need more stimulus when those benefits um, stop in July. Um, is that a given, Yelena, that in order for us – to maintain whatever economic recovery is happening right now, we're going to need those stimulus checks from the government, bottom line. Absolutely, and uh, and unfortunately as well. So, uh, I mean, listening to what uh, Mr. Cudlow was saying, he mm-hmm. was saying that uh, basically uh, the, the package uh, helped the companies to keep their workers on the payrolls. And this is absolutely true. The package was very timely. It was right in size. And that's why we see all these numbers are being so strong. And uh, you're absolutely right. If we, dis- if we see this uh, uh, falling off a cliff, we may see a significant uh, decline in economic activity simply due to the fact that uh, wage income remains well below pre-crisis levels. It's, it's something like 7.2% below that uh, February level. We made some progress in uh, kind of closing that gap, but it's way below still. And uh, going forward, it will depend on how many jobs we create and how yeah. uh, these jobs are paying. Right. Well, the economic right. implications of all of this uh, are, are very broad and wide, no doubt about it. Hey, Yelena, th- thank you so much. Um, have a good holiday weekend. Yelena Shalet, you have a, 
of course, of our Bloomberg Economics team joining us on the phone from Long Island. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. The virus, Jason, we've talked about this a lot. It's been a big reminder about the inequalities when it comes to healthcare access and those who ultimately suffer the most really from it. Dr. Shimi, uh, Shima, excuse me, Dr. Shima Hamidi was recently named Bloomberg Assistant Professor of American Health and Environmental Challenges and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And Dr. Hamidi joins us on the phone in Baltimore. Dr. Hamidi, it's nice to have you here with us. We are taking, you know, a really hard look at the virus and, you know, talking a lot more um, how different communities are impacted. And that is something that uh, has certainly been front and center for you. Thank you for having me. Um, Absolutely. Um, So, you know, there have been a lot of um, research and uh, many, many researchers have been looking at different aspects of COVID-19 pandemic. One aspect that has been less studied relatively has been density. Um, to what extent we see there is, you know, any connection between density and the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, what we see from the conversations among practitioners, um, in, even in the academic context or news media outlets, uh, you know, you see extensive coverage that blaming density Uh, urban density for the rapid growth of uh, COVID-19, particularly in New York City, and referring to suburban sprawl as the United States' secret weapon against coronavirus. Um, So what uh, myself and my team have been trying to do uh, was to look closer at this issue and topic, doing a national study, looking at 913 metropolitan counties in the U.S., and really looking at what, what the data tells us. And what does it tell you? Because I believe in in your research, Dr. Hamidi, you have you distinguish between activity density density as being distinct from crowding or overcrowding, and I feel like that's a really important uh, distinction. So help us understand that. Absolutely, uh, this is very very important uh, because that, these are the two um, uh, concepts that are most often confounded with each other. Uh, density and crowding or overcrowding. Crowding could happen when a large number of people gathered closely together, um, and it could happen in bars, restaurants, schools, sports events, airports, supermarkets, or even on beaches, uh, as you've been um, seeing on the news uh, in Florida or, or beaches in California. And by definition, the crowding could happen even at the very low density areas and all of these venues. Um, and our study have been trying to distinguish between the two, crowding and density, and see to what extent, uh, you know, when you control for the level of crowding or pe- people's uh, level of social distancing, what is the relationship between density, um, activity density, and the COVID-19 spread? Yeah, it's, you know, something that's just kind of unfortunately a stark reality. I, you know, when you look at this, how can we do better going forward? Because this is just, you know, in terms of how people are living and their exposure, I feel like it's a reality, but how do we change that? Uh, so the first thing I want to mention is, which is uh, our, our biggest message, is that density is not a factor. Uh, dense places are not 
linked to higher infection rates, per capita infection rates, and mortality rates. They uh, quite the opposite. Dense hmm. places are linked to significantly lower death rates. Uh, but what is really important is crowding. Um, I have done a follow-up study that's uh, currently under, under review by a journal looking at New York cities, for example, and different neighborhoods in New York and uh, what we see in terms of the uh, special disparities of the, the infection rates and built environment. And what I found on these two studies and the other one is that uh, it's, it's about crowding, crowded housing, um, it's about crowded businesses, um, as, as I mentioned, bars, restaurants, uh, or other venues where you have a large number of people gathered together. Um, and it's about um, uh, the uh, socio-demographic and racial disparities, the most significant factor being, um, you know, uh, being um, racial disparities or percentage of African-Americans who are more vulnerable to the pandemic, uh, according to CDC. The other big factor is to what extent people are working on job sectors that allow them to uh, do social distancing, uh, for example, um, you know, um, the, the educational attainment and job sectors. Um, the other very important factor, particularly in New York City, is the extent to which people could actually leave the city and mm. emptying out um, uh, the city uh, to escape the pandemic. And you have you, you can see that particularly in Manhattan, New York, uh, in Manhattan uh, part of New York City, where um, the majority of uh, neighborhoods had um, a significant portion of residents leaving the city. And uh, by definition, you can't get the virus, you know, if you leave the city. Right. But you can only do that if you can afford to leave. Right. Uh, right. Financially and, that, and in terms of your job sector. And that is definitely something we've talked about a lot, certainly on our broadcast. Uh, in fact, just talking about uh, some of the uh, closings when it comes to Manhattan real estate right now and what's going on. But that that exodus is something we've talked about and who can do it. Uh, Dr. Shima uh, Hamidi, she is uh, Bloomberg Assistant Professor of American Health and Environmental Challenges and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, all right, as we drive to the close on this Thursday, the end of the trading week ahead of the long holiday weekend, let's check in with our pal Alan Zaffron, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. He joins us on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, how are you? I'm doing great. 73 degrees, sunny, no humidity. It is a beautiful day in California, my friend. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Um, I got to ask you, you know, you get to the end of, of this week, you see the jobs report, you see the jobless claims report. You're seeing the headlines in California that we are um, that are pretty scary when it comes to what's going on with the virus in California and Texas and Arizona and Florida and elsewhere. How do you square it all? Uh, you square it all because you realize a lot of the capital that the balance sheet is expansion for the Fed is happening is going right to the stock market. It's not connected to people working in the leisure and hospitality industry or out here in 
Southern California, the motion picture and sound recording industry, those people have lost jobs and it's not clear they're coming back. So there's clearly a disconnect between the current status of the financial markets in the main economy. And uh, it's, it's difficult because patience is going to play out that probably this was the right thing to do is goose up the economy, but it's very hard to swallow if you don't have a job right now. You watch the market go up and you feel like you're not participating. It's a very difficult, visceral thing to experience. Because you're not participating. I think that's the one thing, too, Alan, that I do get a little concerned that folks in Washington, the administration, are focusing maybe too much as or on the stock market as an indicator of us uh, bouncing back from the virus when we know that a large part of Americans don't participate in the equity markets. Well, that's right. You know, something close to 60% of Americans have less than $25,000 of savings. So you're wondering why there's a gap. Uh, that says it right there. And unfortunately, I think COVID has accelerated a lot of trends, one of which is the widening gap between the rich and the poor. If you have a balance sheet, you've, you're actually benefiting as we bounce back. If you live, you know, day to day, um, you may have lost that job and you don't have any savings to benefit here. Um, it is incredibly difficult um, to message properly. But, you know, look, at the San Luis Fed president, Bullard, just came out and he said, we're keeping the balance sheet loose for a long while because we are worried about a p- potential wave of bankruptcies if the health crisis gets out of control. It's not our base case, right? but we have to be ready in advance. We can't react after the fact that the consequence of that is you get an expansion of the Fed balance sheet. And if you believe Morgan Stanley and Jeffries, somewhere between 70 to 90 percent of the balance sheet expansion flows right through the stocks. And so if you're asking, why are we bouncing up right now? Um, the belief is the Fed's going to expand the balance sheet kind of around $10 trillion. Well, we've already expanded $6 trillion. And so you say to yourself, you know, what does that mean? Well, put it in context. So follow the math. The market right now, the S&P 500 is worth about $27 trillion. Every $1 trillion of stimulus adds up quickly. And if you go back to Europe and Japan, their balance sheets in the central bank are 100% of GDP. Our GDP is $20 trillion. And instead of going from 6 to $10 trillion, we go from 6 to $20 trillion, bearing in mind that 70 to 90% of it flows through the stocks, you're going to see a huge move up on the stock market. And that's why you don't fight the Fed. The yeah. money is flowing right into the stock market. And that's, that's a really hard pill to swallow. If you were working in the motion theater industry or a sightseeing industry or some kind of transit and ground transportation, those are all the jobs have been lost. And it's really tough to swallow. And so um, the Fed has to play that loose because in the event we get a wave of bankruptcies, there's got to be a mechanism to take care of those people that don't have the jobs. So, Alan, talk to me about real estate, because it's something that I know you think about. We think about it here on the East Coast. I think if you're in one of these like highly or very expensive areas, both from a commercial and a residential perspective, you sort of wonder what the future is. You wonder where the other shoe drops, if it does, when it comes to real estate. How do you think about real estate in this environment? Uh, real estate's really challenged, because I don't know what the rules are regarding forbearance. So, um I think all you can do is recognize the banks don't want to take possessions of buildings if you're a landlord. Landlords feel like they're getting stuck with the fact that they have to deal with people deferring the rent payments. The reality is a lot of people deferring the rent payments can't afford to make the payments. 
I'm not sure everyone's game playing the system. I think it is difficult to be an investor in real estate in the short run in that you don't know what your cash flows are going to be from uh, people renting apartments, store owners in office buildings. I think the assurance is if you're, it's like everything else, if you're in the right location with the right type of property, um, you can recognize today this is still going to be a somewhat temporary uh, situation of diminished cash flow as long as you're in the right property. If you're in a tertiary property in an office building, good luck. So I think this whole crisis reinforces real estate comes down to quality of property. And even if you think there's a modest diminishment of cash flow in the next three to 12 months, um, that property is going to hold enduring value long run. We will get through this eventually, and there will still be people eventually working out of office buildings, and people will still be paying their rent, paying their rent because they will still mostly be employed. It says to me, though, Alan, the building boom that we've seen in so many different cities, you know, out of the Great Recession and certainly in the last few years, you know, it's going to ultimately, though, mean that we've done some overbuilding here. We've done a lot of overbuilding, particularly in retail. You're going to see retail, by the way, is going to get repurposed Mm. um, in the forms of things like apartment buildings or in the things hip and cool office going forward, but with more square foot per employee, which may make it a little less attractive from a cash flow perspective. But the reality is uh, we are over-retailed and we are overbuilt selectively. The flip side of that is you're going to see renewed demand for housing, suburban housing. You're going to see a whole new wave of interest either in high-quality apartment or in single-family residential away from the city and more towards the suburbs. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a lot – uh, left to be figured out and written and said about this. Alan Zaffron, always good to catch up with you. So thoughtful, uh, as always. Joining us from Foster City, California, Alan Zaffron, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.